I was thinking this morning, let me say this so you can find it if you want. We're going to be primarily in Acts chapter 13 this morning, the book of Acts chapter 13. So if you've got uh, your Bible with you um, and you want to turn there, you can. Verses will be up on the screens. You can uh, look on your mobile device, however you want to do that. Um, I was thinking earlier as we were doing the run-through that the last time uh, Jake Turner and I shared uh, a stage... I was a 23-year-old student minister, and he was a 16-year-old high school student. Um, and he was leading worship, and I was teaching, never imagining, never served on staff together before here, but never imagining uh, we'd be here at this time. So uh, it's just kind of uh, amazing and bizarre how God weaves together the stories of our lives. The, the direction I want us to go this morning with regard to uh, living fearlessly as we uh, close out this message and this series is talking about what it means to be a fearless church. It's not just individuals that can be infected with a spirit of fear. Where individually you and I are, are fueling our decisions more out of fear than out of faith. That same sort of sickness or disease can infect uh, a church as a whole as well. Where a church, the, the, the body of Christ, the people of God, a holy priesthood, a royal people called out from among the nations can actually begin operating and, and making decisions and not making decisions uh, and living week in and week out out of fear instead of faith. And so I want us to look this morning at, at what are some of the characteristics that we find in Acts of fearless churches. What marks fearless churches? And when I say fearless churches, I'm, I'm not talking about a kind of foolhardy fearlessness, right? Um, I had a number of conversations uh, yesterday with leadership board members, with the leadership board as a whole. We were looking at um, our desire, our plan, uh, what we had hoped to do with regard to kicking off um, adult small groups and Sunday school classes back again um, starting this next week on campus uh, and, and weighing that against uh, an increasingly, um, I guess just an increasing rise in, in COVID positive cases and exposures both in our community and in our own church and trying to make the right decision there. Um, not being fueled by fear but being fueled by faith and saying what's our responsibility uh, before God here and, and we decided last night we're going to push back one more month. I know that's frustrating. I know it's hard to hear. I know that many, many, many of us are raring to be back and to be back in person. And I know sometimes you hear that and, and that just comes across as fear. But I would just say that we have to make decisions that affect a lot of people, not just ourselves or our families. So I'd ask you to, to hold on there. If you're engaging in Zoom, keep engaging in Zoom. Thinking about, I don't know where uh, Pam and Rhonda are this morning, but I know you guys in your group are raring to get back together. Yeah, Pam, you have no intention of doing Zoom. Uh, so I know that it stinks to hear this, but I do think it's the, the wisest course of action right now. Students are going to return. Children uh, during worship are going to return because the positive cases are, are so much lower uh, for teens and uh, for children. Uh, but adults, we're going to ask to hold off one more month, one more month. We're just, we're beginning to see a light at the end of this tunnel, right? We're beginning to see a light at the end of this tunnel. One more month gives us a month more vaccinations, uh, and it gets us a month closer to warmer 
weather. So just stick with us here. Be patient. Uh, Dan Smith reminded me uh, last night that one more month will just be almost exactly 12 months to the day uh, from when Lost Mountain went online. Uh, How many of us thought a year ago in March we'd be sitting here still dealing with this uh, right now? Um, I certainly did not. But So it's not a foolhardy kind of fearlessness that I'm advocating for and that Scripture calls us to, but it is absolutely a faith-fueled fearlessness that churches as a whole are to live with and are to uh, exemplify to the watching world around us. Let's look, at, let's look at Acts chapter 13, and we're going to kind of anchor ourselves here just in the first three verses, first three verses of Acts 13. We'll move around a little bit, uh, but we'll keep coming back to Acts chapter 13. Verse 1. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Let me pray just briefly for us. God, help us to be interrupted by your word this morning. God, I pray that you would give us new eyes, give us fresh eyes and soft hearts to see and hear and receive from you. God, give us a spirit of fearlessness as we understand our calling as a gathered people before you. I ask it expectantly, passionately, and fervently in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just throw out a, a few characteristics, and then we're going to walk through them, uh, pulling from Acts 13 and some other areas. Characteristics that fearless churches demonstrate. One, fearless churches are radically inclusive. They are radically inclusive. They are also sacrificially generous. And finally, at least for the sake of this morning, they are unceasingly missional. Let's look at this issue of being radically inclusive of being radically inclusive um when you look at this list when you take the book of acts it's quite clear uh, even from a cursory reading that antioch stands out among all the churches in acts god was alive and breathing and working through the members of the church in antioch in ways that we don't see in any other church in the new testament you think maybe the church of jerusalem where the church was born But that's not the case. The church in Jerusalem was still too bogged down with Pharisaism and and with uh, Jewish ethical concerns. You might think other places, maybe the church in Bethlehem. We have no comments about that. You could go on and on and on, but Antioch stands above them. And when you look at this list, let's just start with the fact that Saul and Barnabas are together in Antioch. And let's look at these two guys, Barnabas. If you'll turn back just a couple of chapters to Acts chapter 4, to Acts chapter 4, I want us to look at a few verses, really just a couple of verses, 36 and 37 here, with regard to Barnabas. Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Now, can we pause there and say, once the apostles change your name, you're in, right? 
When you come up and say, hey, I'm Joseph, they're like, not anymore, you're Barnabas. But mama named me, it doesn't matter what mama named you, right? We represent God, now you're Barnabas. You're, you're in there, right? You're, you're part of the movement, part of the leadership at that point. So they've changed his name, which means son of encouragement. Verse 37, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Let me uh, fast forward this into a way that you and I can understand. Uh, sold uh, a second home and brought the money and just gave it to the leadership of the church to do with as they pleased. Sold a boat, sold a beach house, sold a mountain house, sold all your extra vehicles. This is what Joseph or Barnabas is doing, and he's doing it at a time far, far less affluent than you and I live with at our poorest levels. He comes in, he sets the money there. This is Barnabas. He's got a personality that's been transformed. So much so, he's so encouraging that they rename him. That they rename him. Now, some of us have had people in our lives who are that encouraging. Some of you are that way. Every time I'm with you, I leave lifted. And I don't take that for granted. I thank God for you and for that kind of encouragement. Barnabas' personality has been changed by Jesus Christ. <coughs> I'm going to have to get a bottle of water here in just a minute. Just that far. I thought I should bring this out. And I thought, no, I can make it through the message without it. I'm going to keep trying. Um, the hold of wealth had been, had been loosened on Barnabas' life. He sells a field, he sells land, and he brings the proceeds, and he just sets it at the apostles' feet. It's this verbal picture of releasing wealth in order that the leadership of the church might, might decide where it needs to go to best further the kingdom of God. Now, let's just be honest, we don't act that way most of the time. We don't act that way most of the time. But God had moved in Barnabas' life. And not only had his personality been transformed, had he been set loose from the hold that wealth can have on you. Now, he didn't sell everything he owned. He didn't sell everything he owned. That wasn't God's call in his life. Often, those who can give the most, God blesses by allowing them to keep making more, right? That's how the kingdom of God advances monetarily. And he had no problem placing himself under godly spiritual authority. Again, that's part of that picture, setting it at the apostles' feet and stepping back from it. It's remarkable. You've got Barnabas here. Now, you might just say, hey, that dude's just trying to curry favor, right? He's trying to make much of himself. I might give you that if we didn't have Acts chapter 5, where Ananias and Sapphira tried to do that and God killed them, right? So early on in the church, God took very seriously uh, what his church was understanding about generosity and giving and lying about that, and inflating it, and trying to control the church. But Barnabas, God just blesses. And he grows. Ananias and Sapphira watched that and thought, man, that's cool. They even changed his name. Maybe they hated their names. We're like, maybe we'll get something cool, right? So they sell off stuff, but then they, they lie about it. So this is Barnabas. But turn over a, a couple of chapters to the right to Acts chapter 8. Because Saul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas are there in the church in Antioch together. And we see Saul in the first few chapters, or first few verses of chapter 8. Verse 1 just opens kind of startling after the stoning death of Stephen for sticking with the gospel message in spite of the pushback he was getting from Jewish religious leaders. And chapter 8 opens and said, And Saul 
approved of their killing him. Saul approved of his execution. Saul approved of the murder of Stephen. It's not just that he approved, it's that he was giving approval as a reigning Pharisee and leader in the city of Jerusalem. So Saul is there. He gives us approval. On that day, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Can I just say what I like about verse 2? This is just totally free. But Scripture is very honest that there are times where you and I, no matter what we've seen God do, no matter how close we are, it's just a time of mourning for us. There's a loss here of Stephen, one of the early, brightest, shining lights in the New Testament church. And godly men bury him, and they mourn deeply for him. They'd lost a brother, they'd lost a teammate, they'd lost a partner in the gospel. Verse 3, but Saul began to destroy the church. Luke, the writer of Acts, he's contrasting He's contrasting what godly men did in response to this. They buried Stephen and mourned him. And what Saul in his ungodliness did. He began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Part of why Luke writes this is to remind us that both men and women were engaging at this time automatically already in gospel proclamation and leadership. Or they absolutely would have left the women alone. As was customary and culturally the norm. But Saul's dragging them out. So you've got Saul persecuting people here, you know, doing no warrant knocks on their house, going in, entering, dragging them off, imprisoning them, persecuting, trying to kill the church. Yet by Acts chapter 13, Saul and Barnabas are there together doing ministry. And by the time we get to Acts 13, they've been in Antioch for two years at this point. They've been leading the ministry there. They've been teaching and equipping and raising up disciples. It's a profound picture of the inclusive nature of God's heart as he brings people together. Polar opposites. And surely, surely in the small nature of first century Jerusalem, Barnabas knew well who Saul was. If you know some of that background, you know that Barnabas was the first to advocate on behalf of Saul. Yeah, man, he's had a changed life. Because nobody wanted anything to do with him once he came to faith in Christ. His former Pharisee buddies didn't want anything to do with him. He was a traitor. The church wanted nothing to do with him. They knew who he was and what his history had been. And it's Barnabas that stands in the gap. Yet they're there together. Let's go back to Acts 13. Because it's not just them. It's not just them. We do find Barnabas. Look, look, at, look at this guy named Manan. Skip down a little bit. We'll come back and look at Simon and Lucius. Look at Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas. Let me just tell you, the Herods are not good dudes in Scripture. Right? The Herods, if, like if you're from Herod's family, you go to Ancestry.com, you're going to stop looking quickly. Because there's nothing good there to find. If you remember, Herod the Great, so afraid that this, this Jewish king baby who's being born might threaten his power that when... Uh, when the shepherds don't come back and he doesn't know who's there, or when the wise men don't come back, he doesn't know who's there, he just says, hey, let's, let's kill all the baby boys two and under. Like, we've got two little boys that are two years old. This is Herod the Great. He has sons who are just as foul as he is, or worse. So Herod, the Tetrarch here, Herod Antipas, 
One of Herod the Great's sons that rises to prominence and power as Herod the Great fades, marries his brother's ex-wife. Can we just say awkward family reunion? Marries his brother's ex-wife, and then one night while her young daughter, teenage daughter, does a sultry kind of dance before Herod Antipas, he gets so worked up over it that he says, hey, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. There's all kinds of depravity around that. And she says, remember, I want John the Baptist's head. And Herod says, no problem. And what we find here at work in the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13 is one of Herod Antipas's old buddies. In fact, the way that Scripture paints it, they were kind of childhood, lifelong friends. But Manan had been captured by the gospel and the grace of God. And they didn't say, no way, dude. No way. We know your friendships. We know who you hang out with. You're not included. They bring him in. Barnabas, we already talked about, from Cyprus, a Hellenistic Jew. Jewish by ethnicity, but Hellenistic, Greek by culture. You get Simeon in here. Niger. Niger is the Latin word for black, dark-skinned, black-skinned Simeon. Lucius from Cyrene, who was African. Saul here, who was a Hebraic Jew, not just Jewish, not just Jewish by ethnicity and religion, but Jewish by culture. Very different from Barnabas. And all of these different men would have been taught to despise and distrust and feel superior to one another. But God was on the move. God was working in the life of this church. The gospel breaks down barriers. It breaks down all the barriers that sin erects between us. And out of many makes one. Out of many makes one. Now this oneness and this kind of radical inclusivity, it's not easy, is it? Just look around. How many radically diverse churches do you see worshiping Jesus Christ in truth and love and power? Not many. Not many. It's a lot easier for us to say, no, 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 they don't look like us. They don't smell like us. They don't talk like us. They don't vote like us. It requires ongoing confession, repentance, and the fight for real, genuine Christian community. The truth is that most of us will happily will happily substitute a, a, a shallow version of community for genuine Christian community. Because it doesn't force us to confront anything in ourselves. We don't have to be vulnerable. Open ourselves up to being hurt or wounded by someone else. But we don't see this in the church in Antioch. You have all kinds of people. That's why we're forming the, uh, a mission statement that we can work off of, engage what's happening here right now. Around this idea of being a church that exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We can work with this. We can gauge it. We can schedule an event and say, hey, what's the primary purpose there? Is it to help people find Jesus? Is it to help people follow Jesus? Maybe it's going to do both, but one of them is going to be primary. And how are we making sure in our wordage and in our images and in every way that we represent ourselves that we're putting that out there so that a community can know that all people are welcome? Now, this is not an idea. This idea of being radically inclusive, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying, right? Um, this is not about, like, loose membership. I don't want people getting nervous and being like, oh, man, that's just, he's just kind of advocating. Let everybody in. Let everybody in, absolutely, because the church don't belong to you. And it doesn't belong to me. It's Jesus' house. 
And Jesus is not made uncomfortable by anyone. He's not made uncomfortable by anyone. Now, I would say quite the contrary. Radical inclusivity in a church calls for a highly elevated sense of seriousness around its actual membership. Its actual membership. I, I got a, um, a lengthy voicemail some weeks back uh, from a gentleman who uh, hasn't been here in years and years and years and uh, didn't know me, uh, didn't even know I was the pastor here, but... Um, calling to, to try to get some, some help and saying, hey, uh, um, you know, I was baptized here like 50 years ago, and, um, you know, the way I understand it, I'm a member for life, uh, you know, unless I decide to change that. And so he was requesting uh, some monetary assistance. And, you know, it was shocking for him to hear that that's actually not how membership works in a church. I don't doubt that might have been what he was told. That might even have been uh, the model back then. But there's no New Testament foundation for that, right? This is not Catholicism. You don't just pop into it and you're there for life until you're in a casket. Um, membership matters. It means something. There's no such thing as, as people who, who don't show up and aren't around and aren't engaged in ministry and aren't giving who are members of a church, not biblically. I grew up, the model I grew up in, you'd kind of walk to the front and, you know, we'd have deacons all across the front or we'd have a, a, a few here. Staff would come down and they'd sit around and you'd fill out a little card. You'd come to the front right and uh, they'd say you're joining by this, by this, or by this and uh, everyone would clap and stand, and then they would come by and make you late for lunch, um, and then you would leave. But it meant nothing. Membership meant nothing, right? We'd have 500 in regular attendance and 1,400 church members. It's a good sign that membership means nothing. That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying here is that churches that live fearlessly and seek to be gospel-centered are very serious about being inclusive churches. They don't look around with judgment at how somebody dresses when they come in. They don't look around in judgment at whether or not people have tattoos or whether or not they understand the verbiage and the culture that we already have here. They're just saying, man, we're so glad God's bringing you. Come in. Listen. Learn. Do some life with us. Watch what God's like among his people. There's a radical inclusivity. But fearless churches are also sacrificially generous. They are sacrificially generous. Turn over, uh, or turn back, I guess, a couple of chapters, or if you've got a Bible just like mine, it's just across the page there, to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, let's look at verses 27 through 30. During this time, during this time as the church and the gospel was spreading, really in response to the persecution and death of Stephen, during this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up through the Spirit, predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples in Antioch, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now, let me tell you why this is sacrificial and why it's so significant. First off, if you read Acts carefully, you understand that, that the church in Jerusalem and Judea had no intention of sending the gospel to Antioch. They didn't believe God was at work in the Gentiles. The church in Antioch primarily consisted of Gentiles in Gentile territory. So they had not shown any kind of inclusivity, any kind of outreach, any kind of passion or love toward Antioch. But when it comes time to be in need, huh, 
when it comes time to be in need, you got some prophets coming down from Jerusalem to Antioch. They're like, hey, man, guess what? Going to be an entire famine. Now, here's why it's so remarkable. Look back at verse 28. What the Spirit, what the Holy Spirit of God is predicting is that a severe famine. Like, this is not just like the Kroger's out of your favorite little Debbie's, so you have to go to Publix. This is severe famine. This is, we don't know how or when we may be able to eat next. A severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world, which means that this extreme famine would spread to Antioch as well. You with me? And even though Antioch, the believers there, the church there, knows this severe famine is coming for them too, they take up this sacrificial offering as everyone is able. They give and send it back to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem by way of Saul and Barnabas to a church that they know good and well would not have sent them anything. That's sacrificial generosity, is it not? They're not only saying we may be hungry in the future as well. In fact, we're probably going to be, and we don't know what's going to happen. But we're going to live open-handed. We're going to live with sacrificial generosity. And you see this over and over and over and over and over throughout church history, that where God is passionately moving in a church, those churches are overpouring with generosity. God is filling them with resources because they're living open-handedly and engaged in God's purposes on earth. Few things, few things reveal the power of God at work in an individual or a church like sacrificial giving and generosity. It is always, always, always there. When God is on the move. And the question in churches like this is not how do we survive, but how much can we give toward God's kingdom work, knowing that, that we're not called to survive as a church. We're called to thrive under the lordship and power of Jesus Christ poured out onto us and in us and through us by way of the Holy Spirit. And when we place our eyes on Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, the things of earth grow strangely dim in light of His glory and grace. Mission first. Generosity always flows from faith-fueled, fearless churches. And wh why is this? What is it about the believers in Antioch that are willing to do this? Well, I'll tell you this, it's fueled and it has always fueled this kind of sacrificial generosity by a deep-seated trust in both the provision and the goodness of God. Like, I can release what I've already banked to forward God's mission and to care for people that are in need because I, I trust the goodness and the provision of God to keep flowing what I need to sustain me. I don't have to worry about it. And it's also fueled by a supreme worship of God as creator and redeemer. Fearless churches are radically inclusive. They're sacrificially generous. Let's look at this last one. They are also increasingly and unceasingly missional. Increasingly and unceasingly missional, which means they are on the go. Missional churches are sending churches, not just sending money, but seeing God call out men and women from the congregation to engage in both short-term and long-term missions. That always happens as God gets a hold of a church. It's just a matter of time before we see that taking place here. And we find God connecting us strategically 
to specific places around the globe and specific works. It's only a matter of time here before we see God working in a way where he's calling out some from here to go, to live somewhere else and to do gospel-centered work there. And we're helping to support that. And it's changing us as a church. And by God's grace, it's changing that region to the glory of God's grace. So when you go back to Acts 13, it's not just that there's, there's this radical diversity that always results from inclusivity. It's not just as we saw in Acts chapter 9 that there's this sacrificial generosity. But we see that this is a church on mission. This is a sending church. Look at verse 2. While they were worshiping, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Let me pause there. This means that in the regular act of worship in the life of this church, they are listening for the prompting of God, hearing and discerning it, and responding to it. Church, this is why we come into worship. Don't ever expect to come in here and not hear from God. Don't ever expect to come in here and it just be another Sunday. We want to come in here expect it, saying, speak to us, God. Speak to me and speak to us. The Holy Spirit speaks, says, hey, set apart Barnabas and Saul. Look at verse 3. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed hands on them and sent them off. Now, they're sending off A players here, right? They're sending off men who've been there two years already, discipling, growing, teaching, equipping them. They're sending off the men they trusted to carry these offerings, this sacrificial giving to other churches in other parts of the Roman Empire. Right? I mean, if I was there in the church, I'd be like, ah, could, we, could we push pause on this one, Lord? I got some other people you could send. Right? We, we got some C and D players. They rarely show up. Um, right? They never shower. Um, can we send them out? But they don't. God calls out those whose hearts are hottest. And he says, I've got a mission for you. I've got a mission for you. It's Christopher Wright, the Old Testament scholar that uh, I continue to quote to you, who said, it's not that the church has a mission, but that God has uh, a church for his mission. It's not that we have a mission that we've been given by God as much as we are a church that God has for his mission. That's why we exist. C.T. Studd, who I told Jake this morning, isn't that a great name, guys? C.T. Studd. Wouldn't you like everyone to have to introduce themselves to you? Hello, Mr. Studd. My name is Mr. Galopoulos, or whatever, right? I like that name. I'd have put in for that name if the apostles were going to change mine, right? Hey, it was Matt. Could it be Stud? Stud McStudley? I'm going to move on. But C.T. Stud was a 19th century British missionary who spent most of his adult life in China and the Congo, ended up dying in the Congo. But it was Stud who coined the phrase that the light that shines the farthest shines the brightest at home. And I want to say that to say this. Often, often we'll hear something like this. Man, I, I don't know why we're so concerned about you know, the gospel and taking it to the nations and sending people here and sending re resources there. There's people on my street don't know Jesus. Well, can I just say, then get after it, right? That's your street. That's your work. But I will tell you what Stud said there we have found to be true again and again and again across the landscape of the church. That the light that shines the farthest 
also shines the brightest at home. That when you aim for the nations, you almost always hit your community. There's something that happens in the heart of a church. But when you aim only for your community, you never hit the nations and you rarely impact your community. And I'm not just talking about sending money. Right now everything is, is locked down. That's the best we can do and I applaud that. But the time is coming where we're going to re-engage our community, re-engage our region and nation, and re-engage the world as God opens up and guides us into the strategic places and opportunities that he has in mind for us as a church. It's a bizarre spiritual reality, an upside-down truth, that you can focus all you want to on the streets around you and you barely make any difference. But if you allow God to sweep you up in his heart for the nations, and get engaged in what he is doing around his world, that you'll find your hearts burning more deeply, more passionately, and more brightly for your neighbor. And it spreads through the church like a wildfire. The church is unceasingly missional because we understand that our God will not be stopped. That our God will not be stopped. Uh, we know that by the end of 2025, there will be more than 633 million Christians on the continent of Africa. There will be more than that in Southeast Asia. The gospel is on the march. Our God will not be hindered. We just sang a few minutes ago, you have no rival. I'm going to be careful so I'm not swept up in the song here and nobody wants that. You have no rival, you have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. That's what fuels us. That's what makes it, uh, makes it impossible for us to just sit where we are and not be a sent people in ascending church. So I, just, I, I want to do this. I want to caution us always to be, to, to be very careful about drifting in toward fear, to be listening for the language of fear. As we move forward together as a church. And just be willing to say, hey, I, you know, I think, uh, I, think, I think you're talking out of fear there, brother, or sister. I won't call on Brenda too hard, crib in here, but uh, she helped point out some. She didn't know she was doing it, but God did it. Um, last week, a, a decision I made, and then I had to unmake that decision real quick. Because Brenda called me on it, and I was like, man, that's right, you're right. And as I thought about it, you know, I, I, just for a minute, I, I had to, to talk to her again. I said, you know what I did? I... I made that decision out of fear. It was not a faith-fueled decision. But I'm telling you what, when, when, when fear makes its way into the dough of a church, it will kill a church over time. Because I'm telling you, there's a world of difference between how do we stay open and how can we shine brightly for the gospel and reach people for the cause of Christ. World of difference. So as Jake and Julie begin making their way back up here to lead us in a time of just responsiveness where we place our hearts and our minds before God and let God's word just kind of marinate and soak in us. I want to encourage you to join me in praying for three specific things. And if I had thought about this ahead of time instead of right this second, I would have sent them to Beth and they'd be up on the screens. But they're not, but right, you can write them down or listen back to the podcast or whatever and jot them down. But I want to ask you to be praying for these three things with me consistently. The first is that God would make us indispensable locally. 
that God, by His mercy and grace, would make us as a church indispensable locally. And here's what I mean by that. I believe with all of my heart that God intends His local church to sit at the center of influence and impact and culture in a community. Now, it doesn't mean we go back to, you know, Christendom. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about our engagement of the different domains of our community, education and business and medicine, so on and so forth. There's a big difference between mattering in a community, because we all go and we all live around this community, and mattering to the community. So that community leaders will say, man, whatever happens, we don't want to lose Lost Mountain Baptist Church. They are such a central piece of the fabric of our community and God does so much through them. So would you begin praying with me that God would make us, in his mercy, indispensable locally? Second, would you be praying that God would make us influential regionally? Now let me clarify this. That God would make us influential regionally. Not for our glory, but for his. Because God has given us certain resources. God has resourced us through you, through your backgrounds, through your careers through your skills and your passions. He's given us a lot of space here. He's given us an increasingly stronger and stronger and deeper staff with skills and education and abilities. And I want us to be influential regionally. I want us to be a place where, where we can be a hub of churches that are learning together and growing together and imaging Christ well in our community. Would you pray for that? Finally, would you pray that God would make us, by His mercy and grace, involved globally? That we would be involved globally. Now, we're not going to take the nations for Jesus, right? First of all, Jesus, He's already doing that. He's already doing that. But we can be a part of taking Jesus to the nations. And we're called to do that. We're called to do that. And I, I don't want us to be sitting in the dugout squishing flies and sucking on a blow pop when God's called us to be in the game, on the field. Show-offs. Um, good for you guys. <laughs> good for you. Let's give the sound booth a hand just real quick. That was moderate, but it's a rainy morning. Good job, guys. Um, God's calling us out. I'm, I'm telling you, it's just a matter of time. We're going to begin doing what we can. We've got a Compassion Sunday, uh, sun, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> gosh, what's happening? A Compassion Sunday coming up the end of April where we'll be partnering with Compassion International. I think we've done some of those here um, before, but they'll be here and we'll begin um, um, ramping up for what God has for us in the future. But would you be praying with me about those three things that in God's grace and his mercy, he would set our hearts and our lives on fire individually and together. Let's stand and pray this morning.